are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Subtle, immersive, imaginative. Gabrielle Serberville is a curious American composer, multimedia artist, and pianist. She writes with an experimental flair that is at once familiar and alien, and her work regularly blends the lines between disciplines and discrete art forms. Her music explores such themes as landscape, disappearing, insecurity, resolve, and image. She holds a Bachelor of Music from Butler University in Composition and Theory, and has studied traditional and electronic composition with Drs. Frank Felice and Michael Shelley. She'll be attending Western Michigan University beginning in fall 2020 for her master's degree in music composition, where she will also serve as a teaching assistant for the Technology and Multimedia Arts Department. We're going to talk about several of your pieces tonight, but I wanted to start with your piece Phases for Solo Electronic Instrument. Um, so the first thing we need to talk about is de uh, definitely the scores for each movement. Uh, th so there are three movements and thus three scores, and I'll kind of let you describe what they are. Yeah, so um, it really started as this sort of stream of consciousness exercise. Um, I was living in Iceland at the time. I was working on a project that really just wasn't working the way that I wanted it to. Um, and so I needed something on the side to just be mindlessly creative with. So I started just doing this weird drawing. And I realized that I was actually working out musical ideas through the creation of that piece. So I decided, well, you know, let me run with this. I'm on residency. There's nothing stopping me from just being mindlessly creative. So I put a little bit more into it, um, started developing sort of a system for the uh, musical ideas I was having and just built this piece that was kind of based on a lot of the colors and shapes that I was seeing where I was living. Um, and, uh, where, where I was, it was extremely dark. Um, it was ocean and then mountains surrounding anywhere where light would come in. So we only had about three hours of light a day. So, um, you got really interested in, um, just paying attention to every last scrap of light that you could, that you could see. Um, and then when the northern lights would come out, you would see different colors. Um, so it was really, it was a beautiful experience. It was really challenging, but um, I sort of ended up doing this, this thing where I was playing with washes of color to sort of indicate different colors that I wanted the performer to be playing in, uh, mm -hmm. different moods, different sorts of themes, um, and then adding these shapes that sort of indicated expression, um, and I got really interested in creating a sense of directionality within the score, um, simply implying it rather than um, dictating it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you read a score, you, lead it, you read it left to right, top to bottom, um, but there's nothing in this score that requires a player to start in any particular place. So... You could start in the middle and you could wind your way around. There is a path for that. You could start in the top left corner if that's just what you feel more comfortable with. Um, as far as the, um, the scores themselves, 
there are three of them, but they've been played out of order before. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of a collaboration with the performer, even though I'm sort of deistic about it. Um, so that's, that's kind of the piece, I suppose. Yeah. And on the scores you have, like you say, they're, they're kind of washes of color. Each one has, uh, some things in common, some things that are different. I would say the one that you, you have a video of, uh, Frank Felice's performance on your website, I believe. And that or that or that was a score follower that did that, right? Yes, that was score follower. Yeah. So um, the middle, the the one he chose as the middle seemed to be maybe some, if I'm remembering it correctly, some darker colors or something like that. But um, it almost it almost looks like uh, you know, like almost watercolor. You know, it's very it's it's like misty hazes of color. So that's kind it of it is watercolor. It, okay, yeah, well there it is. <laughs> it's watercolor and ink uh, and pen and um, I love stencils. I collect stencils, so I'll use them in creating certain shapes. But usually, I'm like cutting stencils up or uh, making my own out of cardboard and exacto mm -hmm. um, that sort of thing. Yeah, and so that's I, I'm assuming that's how you got all the all the different shapes that are on the scores. Like there's there's one path where it's like you're tracing kind of like moon shapes and the different phases of moon. And there, there's definitely some stuff on there that um, resembles uh, you know traditional rhythmic notation. Um, and there's there are also parts that kind of reminded me almost of like stained glass windows, you know kind of like all of these shapes taken uh shapes put together and and of different colors so um yeah uh i mean where did the had you had you done any let's say graphic scores in this way before this or did you did you have a a formal visual art background or is this just kind of something that you were into so I've always drawn, um, I've always like, when I was in university, I took notes by drawing, um, cause I'm just a very visual, uh, person. Um, I like shapes. I'm really into the geometry of things. And, um, I think that for, uh, this particular piece, there wasn't really much of an impetus except a desire to doodle, mm -hmm. but, um, I would say that. I can see where I came at it. Uh, I've always handwritten scores um, because I really like just the tactile action of putting pen to paper. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had stencils for, for score making for years and years. Um, so I always liked doing that. Um, I don't enjoy working on a computer most of the time. Uh, I find that I have a very difficult time being creative when I'm also trying to remember shortcuts for things and <laughs> um, argue with Sibelius about, you know, yeah. why can't I do this unmetered? Uh, but I, I can see how sort of I've, I've liked various graphic scores. I've been very impressed by them and uh, I can kind of, kind of see how I like found myself making graphic scores. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are, 
do you do you remember some of the ones that you were like other graphic scores that you were kind of impressed by um oh absolutely um a big one for me was uh mark applebaum's uh metaphysics of notation yeah, yeah, uh, yeah i remember being in college and i had a really interesting time in college i was studying with uh frank and mike uh Frank Felice and Mike Shelley, and it was very fluxus in nature, the mm -hmm. way that they taught composition. I'm sure that's a huge shock when you look at my stuff, but um, I remember us, all of us in this uh, composer's orchestra that we had, uh, you know, getting together and learning this piece, and I just thought it was great. I loved that it was zany, it didn't take itself too seriously, it was just really bizarre and off the wall. And uh, so I, I loved playing that. It really stuck with me. I love basically everything that Mark Applebaum has ever done. But, yeah, he's, yeah, he's pretty awesome, I have to say. <laughs> he's pretty I'm, awesome. I, I'm a big yeah. Applebaum fan, too. Yeah, and uh, George Crumb, a uh, huge right. influence. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, and then I have influences in the visual art world, too, uh, specifically Kandinsky. Mm -hmm. Um you can probably see that in a lot of the, the geometric shapes that I play with. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of his, his work was very, very abstract, very geometric and precise, which mm -hmm. I was, I was rather liked. Um, I could always sort of see music in it. Yeah. Yeah. Is there accompanying material to this or does the score contain everything you want to convey to the performer? The score is everything. Got I, it. I write it. I hand it to you and I walk away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because they're like, they're like those, uh, Christian Wolf scores, like for, uh, for one, two or three people that score mm -hmm. that it's g totally graphic in nature, but it also contains pages of instructions, you yeah. know? So at that point it's like, well, okay, why don't you just write it out? Like. <laughs> exactly. I'm not. A, I'm not anti-traditional notation. There's a sure. there's yeah. a huge place for it. Obviously, um, it's a language unto itself. But if you want to expand on it, doodling can be a great way to do that. Totally. Yeah. Because I could hand this. I could hand one of my scores to, um, you know, a teenager who is just learning how to play and say, play this, play what you see, and they'd come up with something. Right. It wouldn't necessarily be virtuosic, but it would be something. It would be creating. It would actually be composing. Right. Given given the vocabulary, they the musical vocabulary that they had acquired up until that point, they would use that to interpret. So so that was, you, you just brought up something. Um, you said they would be composing. I'm wondering, how do you view yourself in this piece? Like, what is your role? What is your responsibility? So I mentioned being kind of kind of a deist a little bit earlier. Okay. Uh, and I really kind of like that term for myself. I, I Rather than thinking of myself as a composer, um, I've kind of started calling myself a creative alchemist. So mm -hmm. I like taking things and turning them into other things. Um, you know, taking raw materials, turning them into something else. And what I really like doing is creating opportunities for creativity. Right. Whether it's me being the performer, the, the creative aggressor, or whether I am 
making a thing, giving you the thing, and then watching what you do. Um, I consider both of those equally interesting creative actions. Yeah, I mean, I was I was thinking about this while I was listening to the piece and and looking at the score and it and it 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 kind of the comparison of composers to architects uh you know we construct the building and i would say that a lot of composers put like when you walk up to that door they give you a highly detailed map of this is exactly how you're going to put one foot in front of the other to experience my building Sure. It seems like with this piece, you are kind of, here's the building. I'm going to throw you the keys and just kind of watch what you do. Like watch how you move about it. Basically like, here's the building, but you have to live here. You have to furnish it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. You have to decide where things go. Um, You have to decide what's important to you. Um, And I think that that's, it's such a humbling thing to get to be a part of. Um, as a composer, it's been a challenging thing for me to give direction to other people mm-hmm. in such a, what can feel like such an overbearing way at times. Yeah. Um, I think that performers are fantastically creative people. I would love to make more opportunities for performers to build. I think I, 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 th- I think, I don't know if you said it this way before, but I think you alluded to it. You, you create the, you create the opportunity for the experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I mean, when, you know, you, you say that this is for electronic instrument, could it be for anything or specifically you want this piece to be performed by electronics? It can be for anything. Um, this piece has been played by so many different electronic things uh, because you can interpret electronic in such a wide way. That's I've true. had it for amplified voice. Oh. That's electronic. That Very much so, yeah. <laughs> it's been played by synthesizer. It's been played by electric guitar. It's been played by computer. There are all different ways that you can interpret the word electronic. So I will welcome any interpretation of electronic. I had somebody build a toy to play this piece (laughs) with once. Um, That's awesome. It's been really fascinating to see how people are creatively getting around like the one rule that I made. It's been really fun. (laughs) Yeah, because that's what I was going to get at. Like, are there minimal conditions? And apparently that is the minimum condition. It must be electronic. I mean, electronic. What uh, the the performance we're going to hear uh, is Frank Felice, your your teacher playing this. What was uh, what? setup was he using for this so he was um laptop and midi controller and i don't remember what program he was using to manipulate things but i do know that he had downloaded this bukla synth pack and was really excited to play with it okay so that's yeah that's what that is yeah it has that it has that edginess that the sound has an edginess that um, I think you can you can really hear in like Morton Sabotnik's um, recordings of like uh, the um, 
Oh, his famous piece that I'm forgetting right now. Sidewinder is another one, but anyway, Silver Apples of the Moon. There it is. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I, I, I could not, I really couldn't place the sound, but I, it, uh, it also had that like very analog sound to it, that edginess that, you know, you're, you're at the, you're at the breaking point. And if this truly was digital and I don't know how they got around it because it is digital in a way, but if it, if it was digital, you'd get distortion, but instead, because it's analog, you get this like kind of raw quality to the sound. That's interesting. I mean, since he was, uh, your, your teacher, did he, were you still his student when he did this performance? I was not. You were not. I okay. was. Uh, I had graduated a couple of years prior. Okay. Um, it was like I had two years where I wrote nothing mm-hmm. after graduating, and then uh, did this residency and wrote a ton of stuff. And he really wanted to play it. So. What was the residency? You said it was in Iceland, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's a, a residency that no longer exists. It was a Skamdegi festival. There were about, I think there were. 15, 17 artists, a couple of composers, but not many of us. Mm -hmm. They weren't really well set up for music, but we made it work. It was okay. Yeah. (laughs) Was that, I mean, did, as opposed, like being there with other, I'm assuming other visual artists were at this festival, or was it just a wide range? It was a range. There were dancers, uh, there was a uh, a really excellent sculpture. Um, there were visual artists. There were painters. There were photographers. It was really quite an assortment. Yeah, and I would imagine like a really fertile, creative place to be. Yes. You know, like to to have all of these other disciplines around. You know, people practicing these disciplines around you, and then kind of did that. Do you feel like that? kind of gave you the the agency maybe to to go ahead with this idea i mean i well uh, let me ask this question first had you primarily worked you said you were handwriting scores but had you primarily worked in just like traditional notation before this was this a break or was this just a natural kind of evolution so i had primarily worked in traditional scores before that but i was always trying to do something a little a little different with them you know i'll write a piece it'll have traditional notation but i'm gonna make the performer do something weird because i just need to have that i i hate to say i need to have a gimmick but often it feels like i need to have a gimmick i need to have Mm -hmm. something that sparks my curiosity that's beyond the norm of composition getting back to um you know in preparing this performance, did you have any discussions with with Frank about what he was going to do? Or are you, you kind of mentioned before, you, you don't like to give, you know, hard directives to someone. So, and with Frank's background, you know, in kind of the improvisation, fluxus, that kind of stuff, it seems like this was, Am I interpreting it correctly that it was just like, here's the score, go ahead, see at the performance kind of thing? So we did have one session where okay. I went to his studio um, and he showed me what he had done. 
um, and asked for some notes. So mm-hmm. I gave him a couple of a couple of things, not exactly um, things that I wanted him to do. You know, I didn't tell him I want this to sound like this. I said sure. things more like pay attention to the washes of the color um, or pay attention to the direction that you're moving or um, the shapes that you're making with your sounds. Um, So more just tips about how to read the score, yeah, um, but not tips about how to play the score. Right. Yeah. That, That makes sense. Okay. Well, let's listen to it. So this is going to be Frank Felice, performing phases.
Greetings, all. My name is Andrew Martin-Smith. I'm a co-owner of Adjective New Music, LLC, and a proud member of the Adjective Composers Collective. I hope that you're enjoying this week's episode of Lexical Tones. If you like what you hear, please feel free to check out the previous seasons of this podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Adjective New Music website, where we explore the wonderfully diverse world of individual creative musicians and the art of contemporary music making in the 21st century. Before we return to this week's episode, here is a brief interlude, featuring the music of Garrett Schumann, performed by pianist Andrew Schneider. So feel free to sit back and enjoy this excerpt of Garrett Schumann's Four Little Pieces. We now return to this week's episode of Lexical Tones. Uh, let's let's talk about your piece, uh, The Body is Obsolete. Is this a relatively new piece? It's newer. Okay. Um, so this piece was, it's really interesting. Um, I worked with a really fantastic sculptor named um, Edward Helmbold. He's based in South Australia in Adelaide. We met at a different residency in New York um, and decided that we both kind of worked in a very similar way or a really complimentary way, perhaps. Um, and so I had the opportunity to work with um, a residency group in my state uh, in Indianapolis, Indy Convergence, and we were able to get funding and scrape together pennies to get him over um, and we worked on this weird collaborative thing uh, that ended up being a piece about people and places in the city where I, at that point, lived. Mm -hmm. um, and he was building these things and making these costumes. And actually, I still have bits and pieces of this sculpture all over my house. Um <laughs> He made a train whistle out of copper pipe. Um, we built this machine. It was a failure. It was an absolute <laughs> failure. Um, but it was so much fun and it was so creatively invigorating. I wish we'd had more time because we could have made it work if we'd had more time. But um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to play with technology a little bit more than I historically had. So I bought a bunch of contact mics and just spent a week experimenting with them. Contact mics are so fun. They really um, are. I've yeah. Got yeah. one right here. Uh, <laughs> so I had written this sort of fixed media album uh, using sounds that I had collected from a, like about a one square mile radius. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, we walked all over the place. I was collecting these sounds, compiling them into libraries, manipulating the sounds um, using my DAW, which is audacity. <laughs> and I uh, built this, built this like hour, hour and a half long album and strapped all the contact mics to my body and did this weird performance with glass and bows and tape and all kinds of fun things. So um, The Body is Obsolete is one of the tracks from that album. Got it. Okay. So what are, you know, you said that you had like glass and stuff. There's a, there's a kind of percussive element to this piece. Does that come from the contact mics on you? Yes. Okay. All right. And then you said glass. So I'm guessing wine glasses kind of doing the thing. Or... I went to Goodwill and went nuts, man. Okay. I, I got like pitchers and wine glasses, um, weird bowls, things I ended up breaking. <laughs> okay. So there, I, the reason I ask is because it really sounded like it really sounded like there was a pitch shifted like singing bowl, but I'm guessing that was just glass, right? Yes. Okay. It was just glass. It, it sounded so close to to a singing <laughs> bowl. I in my office. I'm so glad you heard it. I worked really hard on that sound. <laughs> <laughs> it, in my office, I have like eight singing bowls on on a oh, on a ledge, awesome. and I'm. I'm I, I try to work them into probably too many pieces at this point, but um, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with them. But um, what were uh, what were some of the like the moaning sounds that are kind of in the background? So that was mostly me. Okay. Amplified. Uh-huh. So I had contact mics strapped onto my neck, like right. here, and then I had them here and here. Um and then I also had some up on my temples at one point. Um, and so I experimented with making all of these sounds, recorded them, manipulated them, and then managed to find places to sort of sneak them in. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and they, they have a kind of looped quality at times. And it really reminds me of some of the background sounds on, and I hope you... I hope you like this comparison, but it really reminded me of um, some of the background sounds on the Nine Inch Nails album, The Downward Spiral. Yes. <laughs> because That's like. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> um, because there, there's, there's just this like almost, almost you can tell that it's human, but it has been stripped of some humanity yeah. in a way, you know? And that I was one. I was wondering, like, is that was that one of your kind of ways into the title of the work? The body is obsolete. Yeah. So it might help if I sort of explain a little bit of the characters we were playing, because at, at some point we decided we were going to play these two characters who are both from Hawville, which is this tiny little area of Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. um, it's on the near west side. I've also worked there for years, um, but it is a somewhat depressed area. Um, and I was playing a character who grew up in Hawville uh, named Hypatia Lee. 
And if you don't know your 70s pornography, um, Hypatia Lee was a the first Cherokee porn actress. Okay. Um, she's uh, kind of nuts in a really fascinating way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sort of playing this this sort of like old god kind of character. The, the title of the full work is um, um, Old God, New Demon. Or, sorry, okay. New Demon, Old God. I'm mixing, I'm flipping that. But okay. um, I was playing this very like physical character. Like all the sounds that I were making came from my, my own human body. Um, all the actions that I was performing had to involve my body in some way. Um, and the character that my my colleague um, Ed was playing was um, Benjamin Haw, who built this failed machine, which is why it's so funny that it that it didn't work. Um, <laughs> but he built the rotary the first rotary jail. So it is this terrible idea. Basically, it involved the inmates being in these cells that moved or okay. on, on this rotation so that they never had to come in contact with guards. The problem with this brilliant idea is that it would rotate in a timed fashion and inmates were getting limbs stuck during the rotation and having what they called accidental amputations. This, so this they is were all real? shut down. This is yeah. a real thing? Yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So okay. everything that he was doing had to be very mechanical. It was all very precise. Um, he was very flat in his affect, and he was just simply manipulating objects. Mm-hmm. So the objects were kind of manipulating me in my part. For him, he was manipulating objects. So um, the body is obsolete is a, is a reference to an artist whose name escapes me at the moment, but... Um, an artist who has spent a lot of time uh, doing these sort of large-scale experiments and things where he, you know, puts hooks into his back and does all these weird things to manipulate his physical form and sort of self-evolve. And the, se- the, the objects that your, uh, your collaborator is manipulating, that is, are those like contact mic'd as well, so that's contributing to the sound, or is that more theatrical? It's more theatrical. Um, at one point, the idea was that the machine that uh, my colleague was building would make noise. Mm. He had built this really cool train whistle. He had had this whole setup with wax and this um this boiler that was going to make steam to make the train whistle make noise and then i was going to go over and use the contact mics and it failed in performance so that did not work but um it was still it was still an interesting experience that i thought was very creatively enjoyable yeah what uh the, there's they're kind of like drones in the background was that just some synthesizer or it it had kind of a analog ring to it i don't know so i used a lot of train sounds because there is a train that runs through 
So I spent a lot of time doing very dangerous things and getting too close to train tracks and setting up mics in places that I really shouldn't be setting up mics. Um, But I believe that some of those sounds, if I am remembering what I put into this track correctly, are train sounds. Okay, you just kind of blew my mind there. Because I, I was certain that they were like synthesizers in some way or another, you know? Like, it was synth... That's pretty cool. I used very, very little uh, traditionally musical uh, sound sources. Okay. It was very music concrete. Yeah, yeah. This this piece has a kind of breathing quality and pacing that I get from, say, like pieces by Elian Radig or Pauline Oliveros or even like uh, Bernard Parmigiani's um, third movement of De Natura Sonorum and these like drone, kind of drone-like compositions. Were, were any of these influences? Did you have others? Or was it literally like, given this particular collaboration with this other artist, this is kind of what, not what had to, but it was maybe inevitable that this is the type of form you'd be working in? Sure. Uh, I think I understand the question. I, I've i always had a hard time kind of pinning down my influences in a particular piece because mm-hmm. I really try to think of the piece as a thing unto itself. So right. what does this piece require of me? Um, and then I know that I am... I know that I'm looking back on things that I know have worked in the past, whether they're things that I've done or things that others have done. Um, I know that when I started writing graphic scores, I was looking at a lot of Crumb. I was looking at a lot of Kandinsky. But I don't know that I had a lot of overt um, influences in this Mm -hmm. piece. It was really, I know what the goal of the piece is, and I want to make sure that the things that I'm doing are serving that purpose and painting that picture got it so this this is one movement from you said like an hour-long album yeah hour hour and a half i think okay and this particular piece is nearly 18 minutes long um and is the album just a a documentation of the performance piece or are we now meant to experience this purely as fixed media from like this point onward? Sure. So I've never released it as an album. I've kind of just called it one because it is about the right length to be an album. Right. Um, and because at the moment, unfortunately it exists only in, you know, a digital form. Um, I don't have a written score for this piece. Um, and unfortunately, um, recreating it would involve getting back together with Ed, who is currently in Australia and I'm poor. So unfortunately it's unlikely that we'll have a repeat performance anytime in the near future. We had a really good videographer, but our audio also failed. So the only audio that I have is the audio that I was recording, um, which also failed at times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that will happen. Yeah, the more complicated you make something, and trust me, we made this 
outrageously <laughs> yes. complicated, uh, the more margin you have for failure. So totally, totally. We failed hard. We failed really hard. <laughs> failed but hard. That's okay. I really wasn't too bothered by it. I think it bothered Ed a little bit more than it bothered me, but he's a little bit more of a perfectionist than I am. Got it. Got it. It serves his art extremely well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's listen to it now. So this is The Body is Obsolete.
So uh, the last piece that you brought tonight is this piece for violin and piano, and it's titled Messier 83. So what is this piece about and, and how did it come about? Like what caused you to write this? So there is a really, well, was a really great group in uh, Indianapolis called Ascending who commissioned me to write a piece for them. Um, I had gone to college with both members, a wonderful violinist uh, named uh, Trisha Bonner and a pianist, uh, Caitlin Frazier. They wanted me to write something and they were fine with it being one of the things that I typically write, which Mm -hmm. is just going to be a little unusual. Uh, So I decided I, I wanted to write two pieces, one for solo violin and one for piano. And then I wanted to smash them together and see what they sounded like. Very, very cagey of you. It, it was, it was a cagey moment. I was, I was feeling a little pretentious, (laughs) you know, I was a recent grad, leave me alone. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, but the, but the title has a reference to, um, a, a galaxy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I have an irrational fear of outer space. Okay. Um, anytime I think about getting lost in outer space, I start to panic a little bit. You know, for some people, it's really just like awe-inspiring and exciting to think about how big the universe actually is. Yeah. Um, I find that it increases my anxiety tenfold. So, you know, I had recently graduated. I knew that I... I wanted to write this piece, um, and writing a commissioned work kind of was scary to me. Mm-hmm. So I figured I would just, just sort of coast with some of those emotions. Was there, I mean, was there anything particularly particular about that galaxy or no? It was just so a galaxy. It's, it's called the pinwheel galaxy. Right. Um, so I was thinking about a pinwheel and how it's kind of two pieces that are attached yeah and then you spin it and it becomes one thing so that's that's how the piece came to be these two pieces smashed together that become one piece when they're played together yeah how are you um because your your other two pieces you know one was like you say very uh music concrete and the other one you have less control over the pitch material. This one you had complete control over the pitch material. So how are you dealing with pitch in this piece or in your music in general that deals with pitch? Pitch might be the least interesting part of music to me, which may or may not be clear by the selections that I presented <laughs> you with. Yeah. Um, I, I genuinely most of the time prefer to ignore the existence of pitch mm-hmm. um, or at least ignore my my effect on pitch as a composer. Um, so in this piece, I had more control over pitch. I think I was a little more preoccupied with pitch when I wrote it. I think it was, what, 2015 or 2016 that I put that piece out. But... Um, 
I, when I was writing it, didn't spend a lot of time thinking about um, how the pitches would work together because mm-hmm. I wrote each piece separately. Sure, yeah. With with each uh, performer in mind as an individual. So it was kind of experimental in that I wanted to see what it would all sound like together. I didn't mm-hmm. know how it would sound. Would it be good? Would it be bad? Um, the pieces also don't start at the same time. Mm-hmm. The violin so, kind of starts first, right? I'm trying to remember. It's been a little while since I've listened to this piece. But yes, I the violin so. starts first. And the piano is just... Uh, you can't hear it in the recording, but the pianist is just fluttering over the keys, not making sound, mm-hmm. but still sort of participating in the collective thing that's happening. Um, and as far as that piece goes, it was really fascinating to hear how they played it together, because I actually really loved how it all fit. I did... I will say this. I did, uh, when I wrote both pieces, decide that I was going to have some similar sorts of like tonal centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably something that you can hear in the piece. Yeah, yeah. It, it works pretty well throughout. There were a couple of things that I tweaked just to make it work better in a couple of spots, but I think it was maybe maybe two pitch clashes and that was it. Yeah, it definitely seems like you you are like you do have uh, certain tonal centers that you're kind of abiding to in different parts of the piece. But it also kind of seems like while you might have uh, the same tonal center, you might have differing modes that you might be in or differing, you know, systems or whatever. But yeah, yeah, that's so you, you do get kind of like a not necessarily a dissonant clash but definitely like shifts shifts yes. in in perceived like color or mood or or something like that yeah well let's listen to this so this is going to be the duo ascending yes and this is messier 83 
So we've come to the last question, the one that I always ask uh, all the composers and artists and musicians that are on uh, the podcast. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Hmm. It's an interesting question because I'm still not sure that I kind of figured that might thing. Yeah, I kind of figured that <laughs> might be the answer. <laughs> um, I think that for me, music has been the most natural way for me to express my creativity. Um, and it has been a very useful medium for manipulating the human, manipulating human emotion and forcing people to stop and listen. It's easy to talk over a painting. It's not easy to talk over a piece of music. Um, so I've found that by sort of combining forces, I'm able to get people to pause. Um, I have found the benefit of the pause in my own life uh, has been a, a very important thing for me. Yeah. Um, stopping is, is often sort of the most important part of starting something. Um, and I like being able to provide that experience for others. Um, music has always been a way for me to connect in a world where I find it very difficult to connect otherwise. Um, so it really, it, we talk about music being a way to connect and to communicate, but music is the primary way that I can communicate with most people emotionally. Yeah. I, I really like that stopping is often the most important part of starting or that's, that's not what you said, but it was around that somehow. Well, on that, we should stop. And <laughs> no, before we uh, before we go, can you tell people you know where they can hear more of your music? Definitely, uh, you know, um, go look because you have the uh, your your website is kind of a it, it has the phases score and I there there might be some other graphic scores up in your website. Yeah, actually, the first score that you see isn't phases. It's That's a piece called Particle. Particles, um, yeah. That I ended up. Um, it's been played only a couple of times, uh, but always by Elizabeth A. Baker, uh -huh. um, who I just have to plug because she's an awesome artist who also just sort of doesn't fit the norm for a composer. Yep. She calls herself a new Renaissance artist. Um, which is what kind of gave me the idea to sort of rebrand what I do as not quite composition. Yeah. Um, so you should definitely check out her, her video of, uh, of my piece, uh, particle, uh, just really, she does a phenomenal job. Yeah. Elizabeth was for long time listeners. They will remember that Elizabeth was on the podcast way, way back, like in the episode thirties or something like that. Oh, but yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's great. Um, so uh, your website, like your so social medias, all that yeah. stuff, where can people yeah. find so, you? So um, I'm on Instagram. I don't know how it works, but I'm on it. G Cerberville Composer. Um, I have a website, GabrielleCerberville.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, but I hate it. 
please don't try to contact me there. Because um, I just, I hate social media right now. Yeah. Just light it all on fire and walk away. Um, at the moment, I'm in Indiana. Uh, in a couple weeks, I'll be in Kalamazoo, hopefully making more cool stuff. Great. Thank you so much for doing this, Gabrielle. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.